Haggai, and we will read all of chapter 1. Haggai 1, 1 through 15. Let's read this together. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses, while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray together. Father, we know that your word is living and active. It's powerful. Even these words that are so ancient to us and so foreign in some senses. Lord, you and your spirit work powerfully through them. So God, we just pray that now as you have us together, let your spirit go among us and work in our hearts. Give us that fear of God that we need to build your kingdom and to be about your work in this world rather than our own. And thank you for the gospel that awakens us to your cause and to your glory. And I pray that you would work through me and let your word speak for what it is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start off this morning by reading something from one of my favorite publications in which I constantly read. Cosmo Girl. (laughs) Cosmo Girl. Yes, this is a Cosmo for teenage girls. And as if Cosmo wasn't messing up older women enough, they have to go after teenagers now. Um, You know, it is, my dad told me that it would change, the world would change when I had a daughter, and he's so true. 
Cosmo Girl, I hope your girls don't believe this. But anyway, this is what Cosmo Girl says. These are the 10 rules for love. This is how you love well according to Cosmo Girl. I'll just give you a couple of these. When you like a guy, don't tell your girlfriends. Makes sense. Alienate those around you. Um, talk to a guy as if you don't like him. No wonder guys are confused, right? Uh, <laughs> always have an opinion. Seems like the list to make people despise you. Um, but this is the cardinal rule. This is the number one rule that Cosmo Girl says you should not break if you're going to love well. Here's what, it, here's what it is. No matter what, always put yourself first. Okay, Satan. <laughs> I mean, seriously, doesn't that sound exactly what Adam and Eve got in the garden? Always put yourself first. Teenage girls are reading this, and they think this is how you love well. But can you blame them? This is the world we live in, isn't it? This is the culture that we live in, that this world exists, and my life is about getting what's mine, about self-esteem, about building my kingdom and my goals, and don't let anybody else stand in the way of yourself. Don't let anybody tell you you can't accomplish your dreams. I mean, isn't that all over even our slogans? See if you recognize some of these. Have it your way. You know where that's from? I heard someone say it. Burger King. Yes. Because you're worth it. L'Oreal. Shampoo. Apparently because you're worth it. This is a life insurance company for the most important person in the world. You. This is the world we live in. Right? We believe that we are most valuable in this world. And in case you think this is the problem out there, this leaks its way into the church too, doesn't it? In fact, I just pulled up the top 100 Christian books on Amazon.com. And they were, there was a lot of repeated ones, but I'm sure you recognize some of these titles. You can have your best life now, right? In fact, God will give you your best life. So God is a means to your goals. That's what it's about, how about this one? Love does discover a secretly incredible life in an ordinary world. It's amazing how many of these talk about secrets and insight that apparently the scripture doesn't give. Making good habits, breaking bad habits, 14 new behaviors that will energize your life. You see, even in the church, we can begin to believe that God exists to meet my needs. That my life is so important that God should just feed my dreams. And it's all about my best life, best life now. Not about what God's offered in the cross. Not about what heaven's about. And could the Bible be more opposite than this? I mean, think about Mark 8, 35. Jesus says, whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. God teaches us we want to have eternal life. If we want to find any kind of joy or happiness in this life, it's not within ourselves. It's in handing everything over to him. And we can be the type of people that preach that all day long, like, yeah, carry your cross, work hard, honor God. But that's harder than it sounds, isn't it? I don't know if you're like me, but there's often Sundays where I hear a convicting sermon, I'm cut to the heart, and I go home, and the first inclination on my heart is, what am I going to do with my free afternoon, my free time, my money? 
we can be so inclined to build our own little temple, to build our own little kingdom and worship ourselves in this world. And it can slide in there without, even, without us even recognizing it. You know what? We're not the only ones that have this problem. Israel has this problem over and over and over again. And that's why we relate, don't we? Well, in the book of Haggai, Haggai confronts his people with this very problem. They had begun to prioritize God, to push him aside and, and include God in their lives, but he was not first and foremost. They didn't worship him as he should. And God confronts his people and brings revival. Now, before I, I go into the details of the passage, we need to do some history here because we're jumping in the middle of a big story. And what we need to know is this. God's people were in the promised land, right? They were God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, and they started to drift. They started to turn to idols. They started to worship the idols of the nations around them. And then the worst possible thing that could happen happened in 586 B.C., God's people were wiped out by a pagan nation. Babylon came in. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the wall. They destroyed Jerusalem. And it devastated the Jews. And whoever was left alive were brought thousands of miles away to Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. Let me just say right from the get-go, we don't understand this. We don't. I know there's popular movies these days that show the White House being taken over and we've seen computer-generated images of the White House blowing up and it it's hurts, it's devastating, but it's nothing like this. See, this wasn't the destruction of a nation only. This was as if God had rejected his people. It was almost as if God said, you know what, I've had enough. I'm gonna wipe my hands of my unfaithful bride. Let's get a divorce. That's what God's saying here. These people are thinking, God has abandoned us. He's abandoned his promises. God's unfaithful. What do we do? But the good news is God didn't divorce his people. And while in exile, God actually prophesied that his people would return through his prophets. And something amazing happened. This great nation of Babylon was taken over by Persia. And a guy named Cyrus, who Isaiah pointed out years in advance, completely changed his foreign policy. So you know what? I believe my citizens would actually do well if I let them do what they want. So Israel, go ahead and go back to the promised land. Go ahead and build your temple. In fact, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you all the things that Babylon stole from you and wish you on your way, as long as you remember me. Isn't that incredible? This pagan king did the will of God, only by God's sovereign hand, isn't it? And Ezra gives us the history of what's going on through the entire book of Haggai. Let me read a little bit from Ezra here. This is Ezra 1, 2 and 3. Thus says Cyrus the king, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. God sovereignly worked through this even wicked king and 50,000 Jews returned to the promised land. This is 50 years after they'd been in exile. And I want you to know something about these people. These are not your average religious folk. These are committed people. In fact, most of these people were probably children of the people that went into exile. 
which means they'd only heard stories of the promised land and how amazing it was. But they were willing to leave their jobs, their families at times, to go to a place that was desolate, dangerous, that foreigners would come through and nations were oppressing them and build a new life in a ruined city. These were like church planters, like pioneer missionaries. These were committed people. And you know what they did? The first thing they did when they got to Jerusalem, they didn't build their houses. They didn't do anything else except build an altar. Isn't that amazing? They wanted to say, you know what? This life's about worship. We're going to build an altar. We're going to sing praises to our God and worship. That's the first thing they did. These guys were committed. They wanted to glorify God in everything they did. And you know one thing else? This was a great group of people because it contained two very important people. Those two weird names that we read, Jehozadak, right, and Zerubbabel. Actually, excuse me, Zerubbabel was the king. He actually is in the line of David the king. And Joshua was in the line of Levi. And Aaron, he's a high priest. So God sovereignly worked to bring his people back to the promised land. He gave them a priest and a king, and they're all about worship. How much better could you start God had done a full 360 and restored his people. And you know, after they built the altar, you know what they did next? They got to work on the temple. They started building the foundation. The Levites went to a foreign land and they bought cedars and they brought it home. And they were building the temple. And then the Samaritans next door said, hey, we want to join. We'll worship your God with you. But these guys were smart. They learned from their parents. And they remembered, hey, when, we, when our parents led in these foreign nations, they brought their idols in too. We better not do that. So they told the Samaritans no. And so Samaria wrote a letter to Persia and said, you better stop this. These guys believe that their God has divine authority. That he is the only God. And they won't submit to Persia when their temple's done. And so Persia said, that's enough. Stop building. And the people of God listened to the governing authorities in their life, and they let the temple lie in ruins for 15 years. What else could they do? They turned to their families. They turned to their lives. They settled in, just like they did in Babylon, all day walking by the ruined temple right in front of them. And guys, no one would question their zeal. No one would question their passion for God or their willingness to, to sacrifice for God. No one would do that except God. And that's what we have here in Haggai. Haggai rebukes his people. This is such a, a tiny little book. And this guy's, it's four sermons, only 38 verses. And these sermons only last four months. But God brings revival through Haggai. Because Haggai is about one thing and one thing only. Rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. That's his one message. And he's not just some crazy old guy obsessed with a historical monument. Like that uh, the old lady in Back to the Future, like save the clock tower, right? It's not what he's doing. No, he knows that the temple is the dwelling place of God. That God's glory is seen and his people worship and they find atonement for sin. And it's a very visual picture that Yahweh has not gone out of business. That his people still cared about him and they still wanted to be in a covenant with him and that Yahweh, God of the universe, still wanted to do something in this world. The people knew this, but they let the temple lie in ruins for 15 years. They neglected the worship of God. It's a good thing we don't have that problem, do we? No, we do. 
we can so easily slip into a pattern of life where God is not primary, where God is not our focus in everything we do. And it's for that reason we need to listen to these words of Haggai because in the New Testament age, we are also building a temple. It's not a physical temple with wood and bricks and stone. This is a spiritual temple and it's the church. Ephesians 2, this is what Paul says. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place for God's spirit. We are the temple of God. And we are called to be about God's mission in this world. But like we said before, that can be easier said than done, right? And here's what I want you to be thinking about for the next two weeks. This is the one question I want you going home asking yourself, your wife, your husband, your kids, people on the street, wherever you go. I want you to be thinking about this question. This is what Haggai wants to confront us with. Whose temple are you building? Whose temple are you building? Are you about God and his temple and his glory and his mission in this world? Or are you about building your own life? Where God's included, but he's not primary. Where God's involved, but he's not Lord. Whose temple are you building? And Haggai is going to give us some characteristics of what it looks like to build God's temple and what it looks like to build our own temple. When we're building our own temple, here's what Haggai says it looks like. It looks like we give excuses for idolatry and we have dissatisfaction in this world. Excuses for idolatry and dissatisfaction. But when we build God's temple, we see that when we have a fear of God and we obey. And Haggai doesn't let us forget that the gospel itself empowers all this obedience. That's what we're about today. Whose temple are you building? Let's look at verse one one more time. This is the beginning of God's excuses, or it's not God's excuses, the people's excuses for their idolatry. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Stop right there for a second. Darius is Cyrus' son. So Cyrus is gone. This is Darius as a ruler in Persia. And what's going on here is Haggai's dating his sermon. He's the only prophet that does this every single time he speaks. So we know exactly when this happened. August 29th, 520 B.C. Isn't that amazing? We know the day, and we probably know that it's, it's a Sabbath. It's the time when God's people would worship him. They would bring sacrifices. And it's also the end of a really lousy harvest. They'd planted, they'd sown, and they got nothing. No doubt these people on the Lord's day would be thinking, what happened to God? Be reminiscing about the good old days when God feel, felt like he was behind them. Wondering if God would ever do the same thing again. And then look what happens. In the middle of verse 1. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Oh, I love this. In suffering, in desperation, in despair. It's not just some old guy ranting. God speaks. God brings the word to his people in exactly the way they need. Let's continue on. To Zerubbabel. The son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, that's the one in the line of David. And Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. He's the high priest in the line of Aaron. And listen to what they say here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This starts off bad from the get-go, doesn't it? I mean, look what God calls them. He says, these people, when it should be my people, my children. But he says, no, no, these people. It's kind of like when I come home after a long day and I'm expecting hugs from my kids and, and just excitement. And I open the door and my wife says, you know what your son did today? Just know something's bad, right? Something's not good. That's what's happening here. God's saying, they're not acting like my people. They should be, but they're not. They're just these people. And what are they doing? They say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So their excuse for 15 years of letting the temple lie in ruin is bad timing. God, it just didn't work in my schedule. It just didn't work out. Things weren't quite right. And as ridiculous as it sounds, there might be something to that. I mean, think about it. They were oppressed by the Samaritans and, these, and this other nation of Persia. So you could hear the excuse to say, God, you want us to obey the authorities, don't you? You want us to obey those that are over us, so we're just obeying them. They told us to stop. We stopped. It's bad timing. We're just going to wait till they tell us to do it again. Or maybe they said, you know what? We, we got in the promised land, but we didn't build our houses first. We need somewhere to to live, right? You want us to have shelter, so let's focus on our houses for a bit, and then when things cool down, we'll, we'll go back to the temple. Seems logical, right? And you know what else might have happened is Isaiah predicted 70 years in exile. This is year 66. So it's possible some people were like, not 70 yet. A little procrastination doesn't hurt anybody. Right? God, we'll get to it. And here's what God says. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? See what God does? Oh, you want to talk timing, do you? Is it time for you to build your paneled houses? Well, what are these paneled houses? Well, paneled simply means wood houses. Right, maybe wood ceilings, wood walls. It doesn't seem like that big a deal to us. But it is a big deal for this period of time and in this place. In fact, has anybody ever been to Jerusalem here? Anybody? Oh, good, we got a couple people. Now, if you've been there or have seen pictures, would you describe it as a very lush, foresty area? No, right? There's, there's not a tree in sight. And if they are, they're like this tall, Right? They're not something you would build your houses or your temple out of. No way. So for these people to have wood in their houses, they would have had to travel hundreds of miles to Lebanon and to Tyre and Sidon and had to spend tons of money and time to get the wood and then bring it back on their houses. It's even possible that some commentators believe that, you know what, when they, they told them to stop the temple building, they already had the wood for the temple and the people thought, we don't want to go, let the wood go to waste, so let's just take the wood that we would have put on the temple and let's build our homes with them. Makes sense. Seems like the right thing to do, right? It's pragmatic. It works. But they built their own temples. They built their own homes. And a God, God is essentially saying here, ah, timing you say. Okay. Hey, that's, that's sure a nice house. Wood, really? You cut trees down? Oh, you went somewhere else. Oh, that was from the temple? Yeah. Too bad I didn't supply you 
If that was that wood for back in the day, right? Oh, you say oppression was bad? Persia? Yeah, they're a big nation. I don't know if I can handle them. Right? Oh, timing, you say. I wasn't clear enough. Maybe I, I should have wrote it in the sky, right? I should have gave you more warning. I should have done something more. Huh. Remind me again, where were you 15 years ago? In a foreign nation? How'd you get here? A pagan king freed you? And he gave you money to build my temple? Wow, that just worked out, didn't it? God be saying, hey, you see that guy over there? Isn't he uh, related to David? Isn't he related to Joshua? No way. So you have money, 15 years, a king and a priest. I totally get it. Not enough time. God is completely mocking them. Completely God is saying, no, it's not about timing. It's not about anything except idolatry. You've turned to worship yourselves. You built your own temple. You focused on your own families, and you pushed me aside. You're not about the worship that I've brought you out of this foreign land for. You're not about making me Lord of your life and giving me worship in all things. You just want to have me as a hobby on the weekends, as something I do but not the focus in my life. You're just giving me your leftovers, right? Take care of everything I want, and then God gets the rest. Guys, this is so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy to get distracted in this world from what we're saved to do, to worship and to give our lives for God. And what do we do when we start to fall into idolatrous behavior? We make excuses, don't we? God, I can't, I can't go to church. I can't be a part of a meaningful Local church, I know your words preached. I know I need to be confronted in my sin. I know I need the gospel to heal, but I'm tired. I work hard during the week. My kids, they won't get out of bed on Sunday. It's difficult. God, I don't want to be involved in a home group. They, they're like 15, 20 people with tons of baggage, and I just don't want to get into that. I don't, I don't bring any baggage of my own, but I don't want to confess sin to people that might spread it around. I don't want to expose myself to that. Are you crazy? No, no. Home groups, church, they can wait. How about this? You know what? I just worship God so much better in nature. I, I worship God at the beach and at the ocean, and I don't need a church or a building or, or a room full of spirit-filled people made in the image of God to worship. We got problems, don't we? What about the Great Commission? We've been confronted with so many things these last couple weeks, as Dave and Brad spoke to us, right? About putting God's kingdom first. Do we say, God, you know what? I have little kids, and that would be dangerous. I can't do that. It's, it's going to take too much. I'm not qualified for that. I have too many bills right now. I can't send. I can't go myself. It can wait. God, you want me to be holy? You don't understand my wife or my husband or how annoying my kids can be at times. You don't understand how horrible my boss is and how much I have to put up with. You know, holiness can wait. I'm going to get what's mine. We do this, don't we? We so easily want to excuse our idolatry. And guys, I know I can go on and on. I can go on. These are just sins that came out of my heart that I know about. What keeps us up at night? What t- 
takes all of our energy and all our behavior in this world. Is it God's kingdom or is it ours? You know, I found it interesting that in Matthew 9, Jesus said this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Notice he didn't say, the harvest is plentiful. There's just not enough money or not enough time or not enough qualified people. No, so often the biggest hindrance to God's kingdom is sometimes his people that won't let go of their idols. And so what do we do? Well, Haggai is going to tell us what happens if we hold on to those idols a little bit longer. We excuse our idolatry, but we also become dissatisfied in this world. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And this is Haggai's favorite little phrase here. He uses it over and over again to say, look at your past and look at the road you're headed down. Think about what you're doing. And then this is what he brings up. Look at verse 6. You've sown much and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You pursued your kingdom. How's that turned out for you? It doesn't satisfy, does it? You eat, you can't have enough. You drink, you can't have enough. Even the clothes you have and the work you do seems like it comes to nothing, right? You get a little bit of money, you put it in your pocket, it disappears. We've all been there, right? Anybody ever said, where did the money go? Right? That's what the people are saying here. What happened? I've pursued myself and I have nothing to show for it. And it sounds like this could be really harsh and really horrible, but this is God's grace working in the lives of his people. Jump to verse 9. We have a little bit more of this. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Oh, we get a glimpse of what's really going on here, don't we? It wasn't just this accident that things just didn't work out. God was behind it. Look at the next part of the verse. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God says, I made this become worthless. I'm the one that brought you desolate. I'm the one that has frustrated your plans. And this is a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28 when Moses, Moses said, look guys, if you go your own way, if you follow your own idols, then God will destroy your life. Crops will die, livestock will die, you will be miserable. And no doubt these people were thinking, wait a minute, this is what our parents did. This is what got them kicked out of the promised land. We're going down the same direction as them. Right? Consider your ways. Don't Go into sin. Don't build your own kingdom. And guys, look, I'm not trying to say that in this world, this always works this way. That if you sin, bad things will happen. I know a lot of really comfortable, sinful people that don't care anything about God. We live in a fallen world. As Romans 8 says, the world is groaning under the curse where good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. But I do know this. The end of sin 
and idolatry is destruction. And it is only by the grace of God that your life is frustrated now and not in hell. And this is a really gracious, kind act by God to do this in his children's life. In fact, this is just God being a great dad, a great parent. I mean, you guys have experienced this as parents, haven't you? You ever see your kid doing something that's kind of stupid, but you know it's not enough to get them really hurt, seriously, or to destroy something, and you see them do it, and you don't stop them. You say the thing that every parent says at one point or another. I wouldn't do that if I were you. And what do they do? They do the same thing, right? And they come to you crying, and you can teach them through that. Parents do this, don't we? Next time your kid does that, say, consider your ways. <laughs> right? That's what Haggai's saying. That's exactly what he's saying here. You go down that path, it's going to end in destruction. And God's making so that happens. So that they're frustrated. And this is incredibly gracious, because God made us to worship him. And not the stuff in this world. So to turn us from that is God's grace and satisfaction that he can only bring. And so if you're frustrated with this world, if you find it difficult in your job, in your home, in your families, praise God. That's a mark that you're his child. That he's working in you not to settle down in this world. But if you are satisfied with the things of this world, that's when you need to repent. Because that end is destruction. You know, I heard a great illustration from a guy named Francis Chan. I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of him. Um, he preached a sermon similar to this and had this illustration. And it's a little cheesy. And I'm a teacher. I like cheesy and, and visual. So I'm going to do it again. But I have a little car here. All right? And this car is going to represent you. You are going to be in the passenger seat of Lightning McQueen for a minute. All right? So this is you. And what's going to happen is, let's just say this, this car represents you driving down a road, and this is your life. This is the way you're headed before you knew Jesus. And all along the way, you find out one day, hey, Jesus can help me. Jesus can save me. He can make my life better. And so what a lot of Christians do, they're driving along, they pull over and say, all right, Jesus, I want your sal salvation. I want your, your help in my life. So we pop the trunk and say, Jesus, get in the trunk. We say, I want you in my life to fix my problems. If I get a flat, you're back there with the jack, you can pop out and fix it. Right? It sounds horrible, but that's what we do. Jesus fixed my marriage. Jesus fixed my job. Deal with my circumstances, not my heart. Well, then all of us say, I'm not that bad. I would at least let Jesus into the passenger seat. Right? I would at least say, you know what, Jesus, you can sit by me, you can give me directions, I'll, we can develop a relationship, and we can really have a good time together, but I'm going to drive. I'm going to be in charge. You think the Lord of the universe made you to be your servant, your slave, your navigation system? No. God says, you give me the keys, I'm in control of this life. If you want salvation, if you want to be my child, you have to let me drive. And what Haggai teaches us is that even if we, we say, you know what, I'm going to hold on to this wheel, I'm going to take my life and go my own, own way, God is still in control, isn't he? And what's happening in heaven the whole time is this, God's saying, you think you're in control? Woo! I'm driving this car, right? That's what God's doing. God's sovereign over everything. He's in charge. And whether we give our lives to him or not, he's still sovereign. So we need to let our idols be exposed, our hearts be exposed, and our dissatisfaction come for what it is and repent. And that's exactly what God's people do.
They repent. Look at the command God God gives them in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There it is again. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may be glorified and take pleasure in it. God is saying, look, I want you to build my house. I want you to serve me and worship me and I will take pleasure in you. So what do God's people do? Jump to verse 12 with me. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God sent him. And why did they obey? Listen to the end of verse 12. And the people feared the Lord. Proverbs is right. Proverbs is right. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? Their problem wasn't that they just weren't building the temple. It wasn't money. It wasn't time. It was their wicked hearts. And so God started this revival by giving him a proper fear of him, by working in them to stir their spirit and to allow their hands to follow. The first act of repentance is with the heart, not with the the hands and the body, right? It's with the heart, surrendering yourself to God, having a proper fear of God, not of the nations or difficulties, but of God and his word. And look what the people did. Verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Notice the people didn't bring more excuses. They didn't bring a resume of all the things they gave up for God. They obeyed. They were cut to heart. They had fear of the Lord, and it led to repentance. They obeyed, right? They understood that God was saying, look, I need to be Lord of your life. I'm not just the top of your list of priorities, right? It's not me, then family, then friends. I am the list. I am in charge, and I want to influence every aspect of your life to where you can't love your kids or love your wife or your husband well if you don't worship me first. You can't be a good employee or a good boss if you don't worship me first. That's what has to start this whole thing. And you build my temple by getting your heart right with me, by repenting, having a proper fear of God and turning to him and obeying. Obedience is so important, guys. And look, I'm not trying to say we're saved by works. We know that's not true, right? Especially those of you that have been in Galatians, right? Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Christ, because works of the law justifies no one, right? But works is the evidence of what God's doing inside of us, isn't it? Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself through love. If we're really God's children, we'll be about his kingdom, we'll be about his work, his mission in the church, we'll be about his gospel, because that's what he's freed us to do. That consumes our life. We take risks. We do crazy things in the world's eye because we're about God's kingdom and not our own. Oh, I get so concerned with this in our world, especially as we are people that love the gospel. We, we preach it. We sing about it. We love the, the freedom that we have in Christ, don't we? 
We hear it all the time and we need the gospel every day to wake up and to follow God. But I feel that sometimes we can use the gospel as a license to sin. That we can get more comfortable with conviction rather than obedience. I know you guys, some of you obey in amazing ways. You guys have funded our, our Mexico trip this summer in an afternoon. Blown me away by what you guys do and the way you serve and bring meals and care for each other and pray for each other. I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, but every single one of us can go through a period where we can get very satisfied by being convicted and not obeying. You think about what Chad has been preaching about the last month, about missions and about forgiveness and about sacrificing as our Lord has sacrificed. How many of you guys can think of one, at least one tangible thing that has resulted in because of these sermons? We can get so comfortable hearing good preaching and become hearers of the word and not doers of the word. But repentance leads to obedience. And guys, I don't know if you feel a little beat up here. I've been studying Haggai for a couple months. I felt like a punching bag, to tell you the truth. And in reality, every single moment I'd open this and read it, I felt more and more condemned because I'm really good at building my own temple. I am. If you knew the sin in my heart and in my head this week, you'd be tempted to walk out right now. And I know that if I knew the sin in your heart and in your head this week, I would be tempted to walk out. We're sinful people. We're very good at building our own temple, right? So is there hope? Can there be hope for a sinful, idolatrous people? Absolutely. And this is the gospel according to Haggai. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people the Lord's message. I am with you. That may not seem like much to us, especially as we talk about that so often with Christ, but to these people, that was everything. I mean, they felt like God had divorced them, abandoned them completely, left them in Babylon and Persia to rot. And then the most amazing thing happened. God brought them out of that nation, brought them to the promised land, and they thought God would do something amazing. And if you read through the account of Ezra, something is obviously missing. You see, because in the desert, when the tabernacle was built and the people of God made an altar and they worshiped God, they sang songs, they lifted their hands, and the glory of God came down and filled the temple. God's presence was visibly with them at that moment. And the same thing happened to Solomon. They prayed, they worshiped, they gave sacrifices, and the Lord God filled the temple with fire and smoke, and the priests were amazed. And when they were in exile, Ezekiel said, you know what, the next temple is going to be the big one. The next temple will be huge, and God will fill that temple forever. Forever. And it's going to come in glory and power. And when these people get to the promised land, they build the altar, they sing songs, they give sacrifices, they lift their head. Nothing. Do anything. Ezra 6, we learn they actually complete the temple. They dedicate it again. Nothing. For Haggai to speak up at this moment and say, you know what, God's not going to abandon his sinful people. God's not going to leave you to rot. God's not going to abandon you because of his sin. He's going to deal with your sin. 
And we get the blessing of looking forward to the one that was truly with us, right? To see the result of God dealing with his sin. And even better, Jesus is the temple. He is the glory of God come to this earth. He's the temple that Ezekiel was talking about, right? John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God has filled his temple. And this temple has obeyed God like we should have. Went to the cross, shed his blood, so that others can be a part of this temple. In fact, one of the most amazing things that happens after Jesus is sent to heaven, right? Is that his people are praying at Pentecost. And God fills his temple again, doesn't he? Fire comes down, fills his people, and the church is born. And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2, we are the temple of God. And in him, you too are being built together, becoming a dwelling place in which God's spirit lives. We are the temple of God. And we need to be about building his temple in this world. We have been changed. We have been forgiven even of our horrible idolatry and our wickedness and our distractions. But God can still work in us. We can still obey because of what Jesus did. And that's what the rest of the book of Haggai is going to be about that we get to spend more time on next week. But guys, if you are convicted, if you are struggling, if you're thinking, man, this is condemning, you're right. This is difficult to hear when our hearts are exposed, but let it be exposed and let it be healed with the cross and with Christ and with his finished work. And I want to leave you with build his temple because he's with you and working in you. Let's pray. Father, you are totally and completely gracious in ways that we can't even understand. You are good to your people, even among idols, even among distractions. You are still faithful to your covenant. And we are so grateful that we see the fulfillment, even more than people in Haggai's day, in Christ. And we know that you you promise to be with us for eternity. You promise to empower this mission. And you promise to save us And complete the work you began in us through your spirit. God, we long for that day. And we pray that we would love well. Build your temple. And be about your work in this world. Because of the freedom you've given us in Christ. God, we know we can't do that on our own. So help us cling to your promises. And trust in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.